listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put over your life or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. So if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been going through what is commonly known as the Beatitudes, kind of like the intro to a speech. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the Beatitudes of humility in verses 3 through 6. Last week, we talked about the Beatitudes of help in verses 7 through 9. We understand that in our humility, Jesus does what we cannot do. He picks us up from the earth. And then the Beatitudes of help, he sends us back out to help others. And what happens in these next verses, verses 10 through 12, is the honest-to-God truth of what happens to those who try to help others. They get hurt. These are the Beatitudes of hurt. He says, you will be persecuted. Now, we have to remember that the Jesus sitting on this hill is Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a description of who Jesus is. It should be spoken or translated as Jesus the Christ. Or in our common language, Jesus the King. But most of us, though, we like to think of Jesus as a modern-day politician. He gives speeches. He asks for our money. He asks for our votes. And then if we vote for him, then he will do everything that we ask him to do. Because that's the job of a politician, is to represent their constituents to make their life easier. That should be what politicians do. But Jesus is not your everyday politician. No, 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 no. He is a king. He doesn't need your vote to vote him into the sovereign Lord, to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this Jesus has declared that the kingdom has arrived in him. He's already inaugurated it with his presence. And at the close of the introduction of his sermon, he's not telling you that you are going to get what you want if you follow him. He's not telling you that he's going to make your life easier. No, he says that if you follow me, if you let me not just be your savior, but your sovereign, your life probably won't be easier. It'll get harder. People will hate you, they'll slander you, and they might even kill you. You're like, oh, Jesus, like, we're trying to start a movement here? Is this how you get followers? Like, this isn't on Amazon's church growth bestsellers list to tell people that they're going to get killed. That's how we think as Americans. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a martyr during World War II over in Germany, 
he sums up the Christian life in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, like this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's what those who are going public in their faith today with baptism are saying. Christ called me to come and die. You see, the king who is sitting on the top of this hillside, this mount, knows that large crowds don't equate with a church. Crowds don't equal a church. He also knows that the multitudes, the majority here that he sees, will turn into a small minority when he says to them, pick up your cross and follow me. This king is sifting the crowds who just want something from him and not necessarily follow him. He's asking them, he's asking us, have you counted the cost of what it'll be like to follow me? He'll first, first point, say where we are headed. Second point, what will happen? And third point, how we are to respond. I know this is heavy. It's heavy for a celebratory morning of new life in Christ, baptism Sundays. But this is the reality of all who follow Jesus. If you're going to take anything away from the sermon, I want it to be this, is flourishing are the ones whose lives are a mirror image of their suffering servant king. Flourishing are the lives of those who are a mere image of their suffering servant king. So if you're with me, keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 10. First point, where we are headed. Look down there with me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying to them and to us? In the short term, people will hate you. In the short term, you'll experience discomfort. In the short term, you might even die. But Jesus has your long-term interest in mind at the expense of your fickle desires and your short-term comforts. How good of a king is he? The long-term reality is yours in the kingdom of heaven. Just a few short phrases later in verse 12, he says, For your reward is great in heaven. Church, do you see this is where we are headed? We are headed to the kingdom of heaven, and you're like, great, but what is that? What is the kingdom of heaven, and what does that have to do with me? And I'm here to tell you, it has Everything to do with you. Everything. See, when we think about the kingdom of heaven, we think about heaven being up there and the earth down here. But can I let you in on a little secret? The Bible rarely talks about heaven and earth in those terms. Now, when it talks about heaven and earth, in most places, it's showing heaven and earth to be overlapping. See, in the beginning, before sin came into the world, heaven was the place 
where God dwelled, where he ruled, where God got done what he wanted to get done. And on the earth, he set us up as his mirror image. The Bible calls us image bearers of God, to be his representatives on the earth, to be vice regents, carrying out his rule and multiplying his rule all across the face of the earth so that his glory covers the face of the earth as the waters cover the depths of the sea. However, Adam and Eve, who are no better than, than me, no better than you, they decided to be their own kings and their own queens. And they sought to create a world to fit their own bill. And instead of listening to the creator, they decided to listen to a crafty, created serpent known as the Satan. And when they did that, heaven and earth split. But in the Old Testament, you see points where it's slightly overlapping. We see God's presence overlapping with the earth. Think of Moses interacting with the burning bush. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Or think of Isaiah when he's caught up in the glory of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's overlapping with the earth. And think of the tabernacle that we just studied in the book of Exodus that later turns into the temple. Its decorum is filled with images from what? The Garden of Eden. And who is dwelling there? God. It's heaven overlapping with earth. And in Christ Jesus, we have the Son of God becoming the Son of Man. Heaven overlapping with earth yet again. This Jesus coming, he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is near and he's talking about himself. He's the inauguration of this reality that everything he touches, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the diseased are healed. He's saying, I'm inaugurating the reality as it was in the beginning, so it will be forever when my kingdom comes in the future. You see, the kingdom of heaven is where we are headed, not because we are going there, but because it is coming down to us. It's coming to us. This is why Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Who, who's memorizing this? For they shall inherit the earth. The new heavens and the new earth is where we will end up. Because it means that we will reign with the king. Not as disembodied spirits. But by grace through faith in the resurrection of Jesus, we will live in resurrected bodies in the new heavens and new earth. You see? This is how inheritance work. This is how wills work. That when you're part of a family, you get land left to you. Money left to you. Properties left to you. But this isn't just any inheritance. This is a divine, royal inheritance. This is coming from the divine, suffering servant king. And all of this will be ours in Christ. We will inherit the earth and the fullness thereof. This is our future reality. As it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end. And here's the good news. Hear this good news. You don't have to climb a mountain to get it. 
No, just as Christ has come down to go to the cross for us, the new heavens and new earth will be coming down to us where there will be no more tears. Christ will make all things new. No more pain, no more suffering, no more broken relationships, only wholeness, perfection, and pleasures forevermore. Who's ready? Who's ready for this kingdom to come back? John writes of this reality. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer any sea, but then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. We're not going to it, right? Where is it? What's happening? It's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he, that's Jesus, the king, who was seated on a throne, said, I am making Everything new. Christians, church, this is where we are headed. This is where we are headed. For yours is the kingdom. You will inherit the earth. And in the meantime, point two, this is what will happen. Look again at verses 10 through 11 with me. They should be up here on the screen. No? All right, then look in your Bibles. That's even better. Open up your Bibles, verses 10 through 11. Oh, here we go. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And if you're with us last week, you're like, wait a minute, Jesus. Hold the phone. You just said, blessed are the peacemakers. This doesn't sound like peace. Jesus' words are tricky, right? They're hard to understand sometimes. You see, while we are meant to be peacemakers, both to believers and to non-believers, it doesn't mean that they will want to make peace with us or make peace with God. What Jesus is putting before you, he's saying, is the reward, the new heavens, new earth, worth this persecution? Is it worth it? He's saying to flourish, to be blessed, is to have persecution now. Then the reward. And look what he says in verse 11. He doesn't say, blessed are you if you are persecuted, does he? He says, when. This is a promise. That when you associate with Jesus, you will be hated. You will be reviled. You might even be killed. But why? He says, for righteousness sake. For my name's sake. Which means that every hardship you face, Christian, is not because you are being persecuted. It's only 
for his name's sake, for righteousness' sake. Meaning, I want to be careful when I say this. It's not because of you you are being persecuted. It's because of him. You aren't the reason. You are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For his namesake. The early church knew this would be the case. That if it was through persecution and revilement and hatred that Jesus won their salvation, then they will experience the same as they preach Christ's salvation. And what Peter says in his first letter to the scattered and persecuted Christians, he says, I do not want you to treat others, those who persecute you, the same way that they treat you. But instead, he says, I want you to preach with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Now, I heard a preacher once say, there's some Christians who experience nothing but persecution. And I love what he said. It's not because of what they're preaching. It's because of how they're preaching. People hate them because they're jerks. It does not say, blessed are the obnoxious. Or blessed are the overbearing. They lack gentleness, respect. They lack tact and honor for the image bearer that they are speaking to and with. Sure, they might have courage to preach, but they lack character. They lack Christ-like character. But then there is others, some of you might resonate with this, who don't experience any kind of persecution at all for Jesus' sake. Because you look exactly like the world. You look exactly like those around you. See, while the former lacks character, the latter lacks courage. The former has all truth, no love. The latter has only a flighty type of love but never any gospel truth. So you never have any revilement for the name of Christ because you look and act just like your neighbors around you. You see, here's the reality. Next week we will see that our good words and our good works as we are salt and light to the world will cause others not just to reject Christ, but also to accept Christ. He says, they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, when your identity as a Christian is both demonstrated and declared in the same manner as Christ came to this earth and loved us, you'll get both responses. People will hate you, and people will want to follow you as you follow Jesus. People will either reject you for Jesus' namesake, or they will accept Jesus because you have represented his name well. How do you know when you are p- being persecuted for righteousness' sake? It's because you're experiencing both. People flogging you with their words 
but also some people following you because they see you following Jesus's words. See, Jesus right here is doing the same thing that he does throughout all of his teaching. He wants the crowds, the multitudes, the count the cost of what it means to follow this king. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? See, most of us, when we consider something great, we do some planning, right? Whether it's a decision to go to college, decision to get married, decision to move to another city, we plan. And Jesus even gives uh, illustrations of this later on in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, now which of you, if you're going to go build a house, does not set out to plan first? Make sure you have all the supplies, the money you need, so you're just not laying a foundation, but you can actually build a whole house. And why do you want to do this? He's like, well, first off, you want a house to live in. But second of all, you don't want to look like the neighborhood fool who just has a foundation and no house. Or then he says, which of you would be like a king? A king who's going to go into war only to find out that the opposing enemy has 20,000 in their army and you have 10,000. Now what do you do? You send off a delegation and call for peace because you don't have the power, you don't have the resources to win the war. See, what Jesus does in these illustrations and all the illustrations about us counting the cost to follow him, he's showing how we always come up short. That you don't have what it takes on your own to follow him. You don't have the power that you need. And this takes us back to the very first beatitude of what it means to begin your life as a Christian. Not blessed are those who are rich in spirit, but what? Poor in spirit. Who are meek. Who recognize they have no power to do this on their own See, Jesus, through this, he's saying, you don't just need me to begin your life as a Christian. You need me to continue your life. And you need me to finish the race. I mean, sure, we're not beheaded in America for being a Christian. We're not thrown in jail. And it's still legal to be a Christian, right? It's still legal to preach the gospel. It's still legal to convert to Christianity. But notice, Jesus is not just calling physical death and physical persecution the only type of persecution. No, he's saying revilement, hatred, slander for my namesake. And this is what we face in America and the states today. Job loss happens for righteousness' sake. Hatred happens for those who stand for life. We get public dishonor and defamation for standing up for what Christ stands up for. True justice. And all of this is because of our association with Jesus. I know this is heavy this morning, church. I know this is heavy. But hear what Bonhoeffer says again later on in his book, Cost of Discipleship. He says, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. 
In fact, he says, it is a joy. It is a token of grace. It's a joy. It's a token of grace. Flourishing. Blessed are the ones who are persecuted. You are blessed when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We know where we're headed. We know this is what will happen. But third, how should we respond when persecution happens? Jesus says this in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So how do we respond to persecution? To lies about us, slander, hatred, hurt. Be happy. Rejoice. Be overjoyed. You see, when we keep diving into this Sermon of the Mount, in seeking reconciliation, Christians are going to be called cowards. In seeking sexual purity, not just in action, but in mind, we are going to be called puritanical. In seeking fidelity and faithfulness to one spouse, Christians will be called prudes. In seeking to love and show mercy to our enemies, Christians will be called unpatriotic. And Jesus says, rejoice when they call you those things. Be glad. Why are we able to rejoice? It's because that future joy, that future reward is so powerful that it gives us joyous anticipation as we wait, even while we are hurting here on earth. Are you with me? Peter has something to say to us. In 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, he's talking to Christians here, do not be surprised Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. See, he's saying persecution is not strange. It's normal. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also, say it with me, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted, not for your name, but for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed. Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Why rejoice? Peter's saying it's evidence that you are a Christian if others hate you. If others revile you, it's evidence that the spirit of the living God resides inside of you. This is why we rejoice. That even if we lose everything here on earth, We know that we will gain everything and all things in Christ Jesus when he returns to unite the new heavens and the new earth. And church, hear this. It's not a reward for how well you suffer. It's not a reward for how much you suffer for Christ's name's sake. No, you get this reward because of the persecution that Jesus has already faced for you on your behalf. Just as the persecution that comes your way is not about you, Neither is the new heavens and the new earth coming because of you. It's coming because of Jesus. So we can have pleasures forevermore. Peace, shalom, wholeness. Here's the thing. 
Can we be honest? We're surprised when persecution comes. Can we be real? I mean, many of us respond in the same way that new pet owners respond to all the work it takes to raise a pet. How many brand new pet owners in here? I watch y'all get your pets and your little puppies, and then I watch you guys complain about how much work it is. They wake me up in the middle of the night. I got to go on walks with them. I got to start an Instagram page for them. No, you don't. You're surprised that a living being takes work to take care of. And we're surprised that we would suffer for Christ, even though the evidence is clear that we will suffer because he has first suffered for us. I mean, don't we say things, I can't believe they said this about me. I can't believe I'm being treated this way. Or our favorite three words as Americans, it's not fair. Like we're entitled to an easy life. We say those words because many of us have spiritual amnesia. We forget that grace is not fair. The innocent son of man came and suffered a sinner's death so that you can be forgiven. You want to talk about not fair? You want to talk about something that you can't believe? That Jesus would take your status and give you his. That Jesus would die so that you would live. That's grace. That's what we should be saying. I cannot believe that my king would do this for me. This is cause to rejoice. This is cause to be joyed. And to invite others to join in this joy. And Jesus says we are in good company when we are persecuted. Right? He says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do, do you know what Jesus is saying there? That he's now making us into today's prophets. What did prophets do? They declared the euangelion, the good news, the heralding of the king, that he's come and waged war against sin and has been defeated in his life, his death, and his resurrection. That if you are going to be a proclaimer, a prophet, which the rest of the New Testament agrees with, You'll be treated just like the godly prophets who spoke on behalf of God and treated others as God has treated them. Others will hate you. You'll be reviled, insulted, condemned, and sometimes killed. Have we counted the cost of what it means to flourish as our lives mirror the life of our suffering servant king? He's sifting the crowds for true disciples. And you might be sitting here saying right now, goodness, this is unreasonable. How, how am I supposed to do this? And yeah, if, if you're not a Christian, this does seem unbearable and undoable. Lloyd-Jones, he's a famous preacher back in the day. He said, when a non-believer reads these words of Jesus, the whole Sermon on the Mount, they hate Jesus' words. Because they recognize that they can't do it. 
and that it's impossible. But when the Christian reads these words, they know that these Beatitudes aren't first describing them, and they're not first describing what it means to follow Jesus. The Beatitudes first describe the hero that is on the mount, Lloyd-Jones says. They first describe Jesus. That before the Beatitudes ever describe us as believers and followers of Jesus, they first describe the king. The king who has already counted the cost of what it would mean to come and rescue enemies of God. And in this statement, Jesus, when he says, the prophets before you, do you see that he's claiming who he is? He doesn't include himself in that statement. He, said, he doesn't say the prophets before us. He says the prophets who are before you. Why? Because before Abraham existed, Jesus says, I am. Before the king of glory, the son of God who became the son of man, ever formed the earth. Before he ever headed to the earth, he had a plan in place. He knew where he was going to head before he ever formed the lands or formed the oceans. He knew where he was headed. Be ever, before he ever formed you in your mother's womb, he knew where he was headed. Before he ever came to this earth, he knew where he was headed. Not to be accepted by the crowds. Sure, there was a great crowd here. But those same crowds would be crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knew where he was headed, and he knew what would happen to him. But the king who was once rich would become poor for your sake. That the king who had joy in heaven with his father, he mourns the havoc of our sin so that you could be comforted. That the king who had all power of the universe to create this world and create you, he lost it all and became meek so that you could inherit the earth. Well, the earth, the grave, inherited his body. And on the cross, he cried out, I thirst. I thirst. Because he gave up what we hunger and thirst after. He took on our sin so he can fill us with his righteousness so that we could be satisfied. You see, Jesus was merciful, but he did not receive mercy. Not from me, not from you, not from Pilate, not from the crowds, and not from his Father in heaven. He received wrath so that you can receive mercy. Jesus, he was pure in heart, single-track mind, did all the right things for all the right reasons. He saw death so that you could see God. And Jesus came as a peacemaker to wage war against our sin so that he can bring peace to you who were once enemies of God. You now get to be called children of God. And this Jesus, he was persecuted, was reviled, had all kinds of evil set against him so that he would inherit the nations who were his enemies to himself. You know what Jesus did? He let everything that is true about me and you be said about him, so that everything that is true about him could be said of us. Oh, what a king. What a king. And he went to the cross, not with complaining, 
Not saying it's not fair. If anybody had the right to say it's not fair, it would be Jesus. But he went to the cross with joy. With joy. So that through his suffering, you and I could have the reward of life. And he would have our penalty See, before the Beatitudes are ever about you or me, they are first about Jesus, the King. See, the Beatitudes are not what somebody must do to become a Christian. They are what Jesus has made us into be because we cannot do it ourselves. It's not something that we try to live up to. It's something that we live out from because Jesus blessed us. Jesus has caused us to flourish. And this is what he's done for us. Done for us so that our reward is great. And so now, church, as we go out, yes, you will be persecuted. Yes, as you seek to make peace, others will not want to make peace with you. But next week, he's going to call us to be salt and light. And so this is the now. The now reality where the heavens and the earth are still separated. We are to be salt. A preservative to what is decaying. We are to be light in dark places. We are not the kingdom, church. This is the kingdom. And now we get to go out and be salt and light to the rest of the earth. And we get to be ambassadors pointing back to the great king has first come for us and died for us. This is where we're headed. This is what will happen to us. And how are to respond? With great joy as we share this great news about this king. And as we go out, do you remember what Jesus said to Saul as he was persecuting the church? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? No. He says, why are you persecuting me? See, when we suffer, we have Christ who identifies with us before we ever identified with him. He says, why are you persecuting with me? You don't have to endure this alone. For he endures it with us as we are headed to the new heavens and new earth with joy as we suffer. Amen? How many are like me? And we forget that this is.